If you would, turn in the Bible to the book of Job, please. Job chapter 38. We have been slowly moving through this Old Testament book. and We have gotten to the best part. God finally speaks up. Job has been waiting and waiting and waiting to hear from God. He didn't have to. He shouldn't have demanded or insisted as much as he did. Job thinks he needs answers. God speaks up without answers. God speaks up with authority the way only God can. And we are reminded of just how big and sure and good God is. Every one of us are in different spots in our lives. We're going through different things. But I am certain that what you and I need most today and every day, but what we need most today is to know and believe that God is good, he is for us, and he has spoken a word to us. This is the answer to life. That God in his great, great majesty has a son that he sacrificed on the cross for me and for you and for all of us. And every answer to life is found in that God loves us and he will never leave us. He will hold us fast. He will keep us. We can trust him. For 38 chapters in the book of Job, we have seen this questioned, doubted. We have seen all kinds of wonder about, is that so? Is it true that no matter what, we can trust God, our maker, our father in heaven, our redeemer? Can we trust him through the worst of worst, through the worst seasons of life, through the hardest sufferings? Can we trust him? That's what Job brings us for 38 chapters. And finally, God speaks up in a way that only God can and absolutely reminds us, yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Read with me at Job chapter 38. We're gonna look at the first seven verses today. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. God is asking questions here to Job that he is wanting Job to answer, but he knows that Job has to answer to those questions. I I don't know, God. I don't know the answer to those questions. 
And if you think those few verses are heavy enough, God is about to do that very thing for four and five straight chapters. You are about to get verse after verse after verse after verse of God asking questions just like that. And we're going to look at those questions even more fully next week. In chapter 38, there are 41 verses. In chapter 39, there are 30 verses. In chapter 40, there are 24 verses. In chapter 41, there are 34 verses. God is drilling it into Job. Do you know better than I do? Have I done something wrong, Job? Can I not be trusted? Am I big enough? Am I good enough? Do I got this? You want to tell me how to do things, Job? And it borderline gets to where he starts to mock Job or insult Job. And again, we're going to talk about this next week. He's not. He is just putting before Job the reminder that God is God. And to know God is God is to recognize him as all-powerful and maker, but it is also to recognize him as a loving father. All of this notion that we see throughout the world as this big God and creator God and masterful, powerful God that can strike people down and do whatever he wants is a part of it. But when you see God as that, apart from a loving father that sends his son to die, that forgives anybody's sins, you don't really have God in the realest sense. We don't take God's attributes, his characteristics, and separate those out and rejoice in how he is some ways if we don't have an idea of how he is other ways. We misconstrue him. We don't see him rightly when we don't see him fully. And this is the idea that God brings back to Job. Job, I am made you. I have blessed you. I've given you your life. I am your savior. I'm your redeemer. Job, you know who I am. And he does that with question after question after question. This morning, I want us to look at just the first seven verses. And I want us to really get the fullness of God finally speaking. The first point today is the first word in chapter 38. Then. Does everybody see that word there? Then. When we read chapter 38, after reading the first 37 chapters, when we read verse one and we hear then, that is a loaded word, is it not? Sometimes then is just a simple transition that says, okay, here's the order of service. We're gonna do a welcome and call to worship. Then we're gonna do a song. Then we're gonna do a greeting. Then we're gonna do another song. Then we're gonna do another song. Then we're gonna do a scripture reading. Then we're gonna do another song. Then we're gonna do an offering prayer. Then we're gonna do a pastoral prayer. Then comes the sermon, right? And sometimes then is just a transition that just means we're changing slightly. In chapter 38, when the author of Job, who we don't know, drops the word then, It is an enormous turn, is it not? Then the Lord answered Job. It wasn't like Job had a hard day yesterday and then God came to his defense. It was, you don't know the beginning of it, Job might say. Job had 10 children. Job was the most righteous man on the planet. Job was more wealthy than everybody else. Job was exemplary in every way. 
He woke early every day to pray to God for his 10 children in case they might have sinned and not repented and sought the Lord for forgiveness. Job was godly and upright and blameless. And God says he was the most righteous man. And the devil thought that he was a fake. So the devil tells God that Job would curse you to your face, God, if you didn't take care of him so much and bless his life. And God says, go for it. And the devil just wreaks havoc on Job's life. He takes all of his blessings. He kills all of his livestock. He kills his 10 children. He creates all, he creates all this tension in his marriage. Job's wife tells Job to deny his faith and turn his back on God and to curse God. And Job does not. Job finds himself outside of the city, suffering miserably, covered in boils from head to toe, sitting outside in the burning trash heap, just miserable, not recognized by anybody at all. His friends come, and for the next several, several chapters, 30 plus chapters, you got Job and his friends going back and forth, blaming Job and blaming God and blaming Job and blaming God and blaming Job and blaming God, over and over and over again. Then God speaks. We are to see in this word then a monumental reminder that life changes. Seasons come and go in your lives. A home that was once filled with noise and zero peace and quiet, kids running everywhere, the door is a revolving door, the air conditioner won't stop, it is needy, 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 will soon be an empty nest and you would love to fill up a sippy cup with some apple juice. Life goes on. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. As Ecclesiastes says so well, there is a time for everything. There was a time in Job's life not so long ago, before chapter 38, where Job felt Things couldn't be much better. My wife is happy. My kids are happy. I'm working hard. I'm successful. And we're focused on God in every bit of it. And then all of a sudden, there was a time in Job's life where Job felt things couldn't get much worse. We read in this story, Job thinking, man, life is good. And we read in this story, Job thinking, man, life is awful. Both of these are before us. We need to know this, and we need to be ready for this. Life changes. And if your securities are in things that can change, you're not that secure. And if your happiness is in things that aren't that secure, you're not that secure. But there is a God who never changes, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And no matter how much he allows your life to go through change, he will not change his love for you, 
his devotion to you and his forgiving of your sins. If God is for us, who could be against us? What could man do to us? We will not be afraid. We will wait upon the Lord. We need to recognize in this one word then that life changes, but God does not. We need to be ready for life to change. We are foolish and we are living unrealistically if we are hoping that nothing goes wrong. Let's be honest about how much of our lives are praying that things would not go wrong. Almost like we admit that we are so fragile that if it does not go the way we want it to, we cannot survive. We cannot be happy and we can't stay Christian if God doesn't make it go the way we want it to go. It's the way it seems to me in our lives. But it's foolish and unrealistic to live like nothing can go wrong. We are uninformed and even foolishly uninformed. If during the trials and suffering in this life, we ask why in amazement and disbelief. Job is a story that God Almighty has given to us. And it's not one of those short stories. Isn't the Bible full of so many short stories? The book of Job is almost as long as the New Testament. The book of Job is 42 chapters. Even the other stories that we look to, like Joseph or Moses or something like that, are short compared to the story of Job. This thing is long because God wants us to get that he's God. He does what he wants with our lives, and we are to believe him because that is the satisfaction. He is the treasure. God gave us this great book and story of Job and his suffering to give us great hope and strength in the midst of the difficulties that this life can bring to us. As believers in God and followers of our Lord Jesus Christ, we need to hear again this morning that this life is hard. We need to see in the word then that life changes. And in the same way that it may be going good for you, it could change and all of a sudden not be so good. It may not be going good for you and it can change and it can pick up. You can find a new job. You might lose your job. A tough season of life with babies or children can turn into a very enjoyable season of life with babies and children. We are to recognize that when life changes, we are to believe the one who doesn't. The overarching message of God's word is trust the Lord. Hold on to Jesus. And as we have studied so many times and we remind ourselves well, and that song did for us yet again, we are to know that the reason why we can hold on to Jesus is because the Bible teaches of a sovereign Lord who is holding on to us. He is a keeping God. He will not let us go. If he has placed us into his hand, nothing can snatch us out of God's hand. That is the truth. Job didn't know those verses that we know all so well. Job is wrestling with this. In chapter 38, verse one, the first word then reminds us of how much life changes. Psalm 37, 25 is that great verse that says, I have been young and now I am old and I have never seen the righteous forsaken. I've been through life and I've seen a lot. 
We've been through ups and downs, hard times. This isn't our first rodeo, an old saint might say. And there are many things that we have dealt with. But one thing we know, God does not forsake his children. When we see change in life, when your better days turn to your worst days or your worst days turn to your better days, may you not be the float that rides the waves seeing where this life is gonna take you, but may you be the anchor that is holding on to the foundation that is Christ. Or may your life be anchored to the foundation that is Christ. Don't be the anchor yourself, you'll drown under the water. But you knew what I meant. May you believe in the rock-solid anchor that is Jesus. This word then shows us a huge change in the book of Job, which leads us right into my second point. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. I love this phrase. Point number two, out of the whirlwind. And if you just take this at at, at plain surface value, you're like, okay, God's about to answer him. And that's what happens. And I think that's the point. But as I started thinking a little bit further and praying through this and really researching, I wanted to see like, what does this mean out of the whirlwind? And it basically means, you know, out of the storm. But I think there's a little more going on. It, It was a storm, okay, that brought most of the havoc in chapters one and two. You remember that, right? There was lightning and there was hell and there were attacks and there were all of this. And this is what brought the devastation upon Job and his life. That's where the, 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 the tragedy comes from, a storm. But it wasn't like it happened just yesterday because we've seen all this dialogue. There were seven days that Job sat there with his friend, so it was at least some time ago, okay? And what I like about this is that it sounds like the storm is not just the, the physical storm, The whirlwind is not just the physical storm of chapters one and two, but the whirlwind and the storm is actually Job's life. To which many of us would say, I feel like I'm living in a storm. I'm in a whirlwind. And the Bible says in Job 38.1, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Please be encouraged here today that whatever whirlwind you are living through right now, God speaks right there in it. He has hope for you, promise for you, trust for you. He has answers for you right out of the whirlwind. Notice, Job gets a message from God now and the circumstances don't change until sometime afterwards. The circumstances did not change. And again, these are future sermons. But the circumstances did not change. And so Job comes back and bows his knee and says, okay, God, thank you. Thank you so much. Now you've got my attention. That's not the order. Don't let that have to be the order for you. Don't wait until everything's finally going better before you finally listen to God's message. Listen loudly, get on your knees, open this book, turn to God in the middle of the whirlwind. Verse one says, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And the more and more I think about it, testimony after testimony after testimony, 
has been brought and established from the lowest point there can be. It was in the storm. It was in the whirlwind where God found me and I found him. We had an opportunity this week to work at a basketball camp, a fellowship of Christian athletes basketball camp all week long. And in the morning there were devotions. In the afternoon there were sermons. And it was a, it was a really, really cool camp that we were a part of this week. And sometimes I stuck around for the morning devotion and I was there one morning. Big old guy, honestly one of the strongest guys I've ever seen in my life from Louisville, Kentucky. He played football at the University of Louisville. His brother played there too. Big old guy, I mean huge swole, strong guy. Speaking to middle schoolers, he was sure to wear a tank top that day because he totally blew their minds with just how strong he was. But as he told his testimony, he talked about how everything was going the way he wanted it to as a top Division I ACC football player for the Louisville Cardinals. And then he fell into some trouble Wrong crowd, wrong people, bad decisions. He didn't lose his football career, but he just found himself aware of how lost he was. And I saw him stand there that day and tell 100 middle school boys, it was there that God found me and I surrendered my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have you students know now that if y'all would give me the time, this was at 9 a.m., if y'all would give me the time, I could and I would sit here with you all and talk all day long until 6 p.m. tonight about what the Lord Jesus is doing in my life. It was amazing to hear his testimony, but it was absolutely in a whirlwind where he found God. We need to see here today in my second point that the Bible says the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. It is here that God speaks. And if you'll look back to chapter 31, verse 35, this is what Job has been asking for. This is what he was wanting. Look at 31, 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Does everybody see that? Let the Almighty answer me. And that's when we knew Job is asking for the wrong thing, right? This is what Job was asking for, kind of. In his mind, he thought, I need to speak to the manager, please. Except for this isn't a manager of a department store. This is the perfect and holy God who has never once made a mistake. I don't know all the trials that you have had to experience in life. I do know that we often are heartbroken. But God did not mess up when he sent you through that. God did not make a mistake with the whirlwind he has you in. Believe that he has good, godly, glorious purposes for the storm you're in. So when Job says, can I speak to the Almighty? He wants God to answer, but he doesn't really want God to answer. 
Commentator Anderson says, God's speeches are, are addressed exclusively to Job, but they are not what Job has asked for. Job has requested either a bill of indictment, what have I done wrong, with specific charges which he is prepared to answer, or else a verdict from his judge which he confidently expects to be a declaration of his innocence, and neither is forthcoming. He's not about to get either one of those. Job is thinking, if I can talk to God, I want him to tell me what I've done wrong because I know I haven't done anything wrong. Or, tell me, or, tell me why you're doing this because I need to know. And God's not gonna tell him that either. God is not going to give him those answers. Thomas writes, whatever the explanation is for Job's suffering, it is not that God has lost control. I wanna point out something else here about the Lord speaking in the whirlwind. If you'll notice in your Bible in chapter 38, verse one, the word Lord there is all caps. Do you see that? I think most Bibles do a good job of doing that. Sometimes the word Lord in the Bible is not all capital letters, and sometimes it is. This is an effort in the, English, in, in, in the English language to show us that this is God's holy covenant name. You've heard some of this before. Marcus Lehman has taught on this several times to help us understand it. This is the word Yahweh. This is God's holy name, and it's not always used that way. In the book of Job, listen to me, in the first two chapters, it's this name, Yahweh the ultimate highest covenant name of God, Yahweh. In chapters three through 37, where there's all of this talking and talking and talking and talking and talking, they are not using God's name, that word. In chapter 38, when God speaks, it's back to Yahweh. It is a reminder to us. It is a message to us of who's in charge and where we should look. Thomas writes, for the first time since the opening prologue, the text of Job includes God's covenant name. Whatever else may be true, God wants us who read this book to be aware that he has not abandoned Job, nor will he abandon Job. Listen to this, nor can he abandon Job. We are meant to get the idea that God cannot abandon Job. Even though he has exposed him to the fires of trial, God is still the same way to Job that he was with all of the goodness. God is the same to Job right now, although his circumstances are different. And so what we have here is God answering. God speaks. Job wanted that. Now he does. Now he gets it. Listen to what Anderson writes about that. The very fact that God does not come forward as the friends did with a list of Job's sins is itself sufficient proof that this was not needed. God does not mention anything Job has done wrong. God does not mention his sins. God does not mention the devil. Remember, there has been no talk of that. 
Job doesn't even know what's going on. God does not mention the cosmic heavenly conversation that is going on. God doesn't mention the duel in which God is just flexing his muscles to show that Satan cannot do what Satan wants to do, and he certainly cannot do what God wants him not to do. God is in charge. God is using Job to show that God is more powerful than Satan, and we don't see any of that in God's response. But listen to this, that God speaks at all That God speaks at all is enough for Job. All he needs to know is that everything, listen to this, all he needs to know is that everything is still all right between himself and God. Knowing that, he does not care what happens to him. It is this assurance that is restored by the Lord's speeches. What a thought. Even in the whirlwind, Job wants to know, God, are you there? And God speaking up is enough to let Job know he is. Hallelujah. This book was written for us so that the next time you're in the whirlwind, you would never ask, God, are you there? And through the risen Jesus Christ, who sits in the heavens right now at the right hand of God, who has all authority in, pow- all authority in heaven and on earth, you never, ever need to ask, God, are you there? For he has promised us he is there. He is with you. He is with you always, even until the end. May you hope it. May you believe it. And may we be reminded of it, that God spoke to Job in the whirlwind. But what did he say? And this is our third and final point. He said a lot, as I've already said, and we've got several chapters to go through, but today we're just gonna look at the first seven verses. In essence, here's what he said. Life is my third point. Life is not about Job. And life is not about Josh. And life is not about you. It's about God. And the very best way for your life to be fulfilled is for you to believe that my life is about God, not about me. The best way for you to be disappointed and let down is for you to think that it's to be all about you. And every time it doesn't seem to be all about you, you're disappointed or worse, angry or worse, depressed because it's supposed to be all about you. And everything that you want and wish for and desire And that's such a roller coaster to live. When the sun comes out, you think, praise the Lord. And when the clouds come out, you think, why me? And you live this roller coaster of a life that's trying your best to make it all about you and it's not meant to be all about you and you're frustrated. But when you understand that life is all about God, when you understand that life is all about God, you are able to say, whatever this roller coaster is doing, I understand that it's about God. I will trust him through it. This, in essence, is the message or answer or reply that we get from God to Job. Look at these verses, verse two. God first asks a question, his very first words, who is this? Who is this that darkens counsel by words 
without knowledge. Who is this that is talking about something that they don't know what they're talking about? Surely you found yourself in that conversation before with somebody. It is the peak of frustration, right? When somebody is arguing adamantly with, with, with passion about something that they don't know what they're talking about. And it is the worst of the worst when it is you in that position, right? And you feel so terrible and you are humiliated and you have to eat crow and apologize and all of that. When you are trying to talk about what God should be doing and what God is not doing and he, you wish he were doing and this is what you would suggest that God would do, right? You have totally made a fool of yourself for God does not make mistakes and he is a father in heaven, the almighty. And Job here has said a little too much with his friends and so they are darking, darkening the counsel of God by words without knowledge. This reminded me of something I have thought through and struggled with so many times, an issue where young leaders think they know everything, don't they? And the older people in the room are just dying to say amen. Young people think they know everything, right? And when you're 41 like I am, I can be either one, right? If I wanna be right, I'm the older people, and if I wanna admit that I'm wrong, then I'll just be the younger people, right? But young leaders think they know everything. They think they have all the answers. They can fix everything. They're super zealous. They can change the world. You hear it all the time. And as much as it pains me to admit it, churches and ministers and seminary students can be this way as well. And it reminds me of several years ago when our church was totally in a rebuild and a revitalization and we had a seminary student coming to church here and after about his third Sunday, he asked if we could talk in the back after three Sundays and we stood back there talking after the service and he had so many ideas and solutions and identified so many problems in our church and just so many things that could go better. And if we would do this, it would be much, much better of a church. And I remember looking him in the eye, standing right back there and going, do you think that we don't know that? Do you think that we don't see that too? You think you've recognized something in three Sundays that we've not recognized in eight years? The arrogance, the haughtiness. Hey, it's a lot easier to identify problems than it is to implement solutions. You need to know that. When you think you figured out what your life needs best, and now you're trying to tell God, God, if you would do this, then I would be better. God, if you would make this happen, I would be more useful to you. God, I would be happier if you would do this, and I would serve you more if you would do this. God, if you will just do this, God, why are you not doing that? I don't understand what God is doing. And when we try, to show that we have ideas or solutions or advice for God, we are darkening counsel by words without knowledge. God doesn't need Job to tell God what to do. God doesn't need Job to tell God how to do his job. So then in verse three, God says this, dress for action like a man. 
I will question you and you make it known to me. And since Job doesn't have the answers, God's about to overload him with literally over a hundred questions that Job cannot answer so that Job would know crystal clear, God knows best, I do not. God knows what he's doing, I do not. I will trust God. That's what happens. And here are a few of them. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And the answer to that is, well, I wasn't there, God. I don't remember how you did it. But what's so masterful and wise and divine about this question is none of us ever, literally ever, before we read this, had ever even considered, did he have to lay the foundation of the earth? Was that even a thing? Did that happen just in his mind? Is God an architect or an engineer? Is he a designer? Did he have a blueprint? Did he lay it out? Because Genesis says he just spoke it. So can he just speak it and something this awesome come to be? Or did in his mind first he have to think through it? Okay, this many miles apart and this many gallons of ocean and this many trees and yeah, green's a good color for grass. Like how much did God do? Job, have you thought about all that went into this? There's some planning and preparation that goes into successful organizations. There's some planning and organization that goes into successful creations. There's some planning here. Where were you when I did that? And then in verse four, again, he says, tell me if you have understanding. If you knew how it went down that I created the earth, tell me about it. Verse five, who determined its measurements, surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it. Did God do that? Does he have a tape measure? Isn't it funny to think that God could actually have a tape measure or just one of those strings and he knows how long it is? Job, were you there for that? Do you know how I did it? What if God knows the precise measurements on it, but because his mind is so large, he didn't need a tape measure? Maybe he can remember that. Job, have you thought about these things? Verse six, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? God, when I, uh, Job, when I was creating the world, the heavens were declaring the glory of God. They were rejoicing at what I was doing. The angels were singing and worshiping me, God. Job, these things were done in my infinite wisdom, in my eternal glory. These things were done precisely and perfectly. Job, you don't know what you're talking about. Thomas writes, Job may have no answers to the problem of his suffering, but that is just the point. He is being molded into shape so that come what may, trust will be uppermost in his heart. Job doesn't know what's going on. Job doesn't understand. And there is so much that God is doing that we do not see and recognize. God reminds Job of this. If you're here today and you understand that life is bigger than you, would you be reminded of what Josh Womble read in Proverbs 30 in the middle of the service? Proverbs 30 says, the man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. 
Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. But then it comforts us in verse five with this. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. God's word is always true. It cannot be wrong. This book is straight out the mouth of God, inspired on the hands of men, written down 2,000 years ago, passed on to us faithfully and true. And every single bit of it is the trustworthy message from God. Part of it is the book of Job that helps us in our suffering. Part of it is the book of Job that reminds us we don't know everything that we wish we knew, but God does. And there is to be comfort in that. And part of this message to God from us is that his son Jesus holds it all together. He reigns in the heavens, the most powerful being there could possibly be, who died on the cross and rose again, that sin could not hold him down, death could not hold him down, a tomb with a stone that could not be moved could not hold him in, and he rose again victorious. Put your life in his hands. Believe that he is for you, and no matter what God sends you through, trust him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the book of Job and all the answers that it gives us. God, thank you that we are learning that without getting the answers we thought we needed, we're getting the answers we need. We can trust you. God, thank you that our sins have an answer. Thank you that our desperate, convicted, guilty souls have an answer. Thank you, God, that there is hope and assurance for us. Father, we pray that you would give us strength and backbone and confidence and foundation and security in the midst of our suffering. God, do it because there is so much suffering in our lives. God, anchor us on your love and salvation through Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen.